0: Does Vladimir Putin think his country could be at war with NATO by 2018? Why is Sweden asking Russia if one of their submarines is missing? Is the army really a global fireman? The top general seems to think so. Poppy Day, up and running, but just who is buying? And why the United States military has woken up to climate change? Hello there, I'm Paula Middlehurst. Now, is Russia planning to go to war against NATO in 2018? The chair of the Defence Select Committee, Rory Stewart, seems to think so. Here he is, speaking during Monday's defence debate in the Commons.
1: The Secretary of State in the new SDSR ensure that it acknowledges that Russia has radically changed the situation. Firstly, through creating a war in Europe. Secondly, through ensuring that NATO is undermined and, thirdly, through planning for what appears to be Russian planning assumptions for a major war in 2018-2019.
2: Well, my um, honourable friend, the chairman of the committee, is quite right that the 2010 review did not uh, predict the scale of Russian aggression in uh, Ukraine, and the recent NATO summit at Newport reinforced the need of NATO members to keep up the level of their spending – and to ensure a properly rapid reaction force that can be an effective deterrent to Russian aggression in the future.
0: That's the Defence Secretary Michael Fallon there responding to Rory Stewart's question on defence spending and Russia. Well, our reporter James Hurst spoke to Rory Stewart earlier and asked him on what basis he thought Russia was planning for war.
1: So Russia firstly is immensely dangerous and we've seen that we've underestimated Russia consistently. People predicted three days before Russia went into Crimea that they wouldn't go into Crimea. Predicted Russia wouldn't go into eastern Ukraine. Russia's gone to eastern Ukraine. And Russia's making no secret of that. So war planning is contained in their own national security council. They've published this stuff. You can see the chief of the Russian staff making these statements. They are equipping themselves, training and assuming they're going to fight a major conflict in 2018, 2019. Now, from their point of view, this is defensive. This is about dealing with a settlement. But when countries start behaving like that, when countries start ramping it up, buying more and more kit, training, and pushing forward, because the Russians have always believed that one of the best forms of defence is offence. In fact, what they are seeing in Crimea and eastern Ukraine at the moment is part of that general philosophy and plan. We're facing a very dangerous situation. I don't think we in Britain, or indeed NATO as a whole, is ready for that, we're not equipped for that yet. Some people will hear that and think, It means Russia's planning to start a war in 2018-19. Of course, they could be planning for the possibility of having to face one started by somebody else. Which do you think that is? So, from the Russian point of view, it's the latter. They're planning to defend themselves, but the lesson of the First World War is that Germany too, in the First World War, believed that what it was doing was defending itself. It felt it it needed to ramp up, it needed to buy more kit, more ships, and eventually needed to attack France in order to defend itself from what it saw as an encirclement. So the danger of these kinds of regimes getting increasingly militaristic, massively increasing their defense expenditure, developing these paranoid theories of encirclement, doing all these war plans, is that those war plans can dangerously become close to a sort of reality.
0: Rory Stewart talking to James Hurst. Well, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here with me. A major conflict with Russia, Christopher, 2018, 2019. What do you make of that?
3: Well, if you, if you go back to how the USSR, the Soviet Union, used to do their defence planning, it was always, always done on a five-year slot, and the five-year slot had to assume these are the elements against which we will have to defend ourselves. At that time, they had round them the, what they called the near abroad, and this was the old Warsaw Pact, it was Poland, it was Hungary, it was Czechoslovakia, etc., etc. That near abroad is no longer there. That's now their front line. That's not the cushion as it was anymore. And therefore, the Russian defence planning, still in the five-year slot, is even more wary of what might go on in the rest of Europe. And it's not a question of war by mistake. It is a, a question of war by almost inevitability. Think just one point. You know, when the war came down and we had uh, still Soviet Union and we still had NATO, just imagine if you sit in the Kremlin and you suddenly see your cushion, your Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, all disappearing, not only disappearing, but then the other guys, and imagine yourself in the Kremlin, the other guys start exercising... On those lands you know we 're going to exercise at the moment in poland we 've got training facilities in Hungary you get them very, very twitchy. I think this is the basis from which Rory Stewart uh, uh, draws his conclusions.
0: And staying uh, with Russia and, and indeed the, the, the debacle at the moment concerning Sweden and that submarine, uh, Sweden convinced there's a sub in their waters. What can they do about it? And um, what if there is?
3: Well, if you listen to the the guy that runs these things, who who who's a raspberry old rare admiral and sort of gives everybody a, a, a bit of a bellowing every, every so often, um, he says... Look, there is something there. We saw it. We've seen it before on many occasions. And uh, we have seen, for example, uh, Russian submarines doing uh, approach exercises. In other words, in case you might have... To uh, not go on the defensive, but also as training exercises, and that could be that something goes wrong in a training exercise. The other thing is remember where this is. This is the approach from from Sweden, the bottom of Sweden, Stockholm, etc., into the into, into the Baltic. Uh, the Baltic is the smallest of 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 uh, the, the Russian uh, uh, playgrounds for their navy, but it includes what I've just been talking about that swathe which was once Russian territory at the top, and then right the way through to what was Leningrad and now it's Petersburg. Um, so the Admiral is saying to the Russians at the moment, listen Esquire, Squire, is, is, what well, well, are your submarines missing by chance? Because if we find it, we've got to force it to the surface, we might drop some soft depth charges just to see what reaction we get. And the Swedes may not be joking.
0: Interesting. Now let's turn our attentions from Russia to Cyprus now. And the Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nicholas Horton, went there this week to see the work being done by British forces in support of the airstrikes against Islamic militants in Iraq. The Regional Standby Battalion Two Yorks is also involved. They're training Kurdish forces in Erbil. General Horton told Carla Prater that Cyprus has a crucial role to play as a forward operating base at a time of unprecedented regional instability.
2: We've always, over the years had reason to remind ourselves of quite how strategically well positioned cyprus is and i think at this time and i take no pleasure in it but the the middle east north africa this part of the world is probably as unstable as we've known it in recent times and i think it's very therefore important that for a country such as the united kingdom with power projection capability that still is a global player and wants to have influence in the world To fully exploit the benefits of a forward-based country and a sovereign capacity within it, it gives us an absolutely important strategic advantage. It's, uh, It's a time when the forces that we've got stationed on Cyprus are going to be adopting a different role. And we already see this, particularly with a lot of the Royal Air Force activity in respect of countering the threat of ISIL, but also some of what the battalion here, the Yorks, have been doing uh, in support of the Peshmerga forces.
0: You mentioned the developing role for the infantry battalions on Ireland. Tell us more about what that role will really entail and what the, the troops based here can really expect from the future.
2: My cop-out is that the troops should be expected, expect to be surprised. I was shouting to the commanding officer here, uh, Phil Bassingham Searle, and he said no-one could have expected that the first operational deployment for quite some time would be effectively on a humanitarian mission to try and extricate some displaced people from a a mountain where they stood the chances of being starved or killed. But I think that that is the nature of an unstable region and a destabilised place. Um, That I think that there is a whole range of different scenarios everything from um, um, non-combatant evacuation operations uh, to things that might be in support of the training of regional forces. Um, Clearly, we don't know over time quite what the wider UK involvement in the fight against ISIL is going to be, but I have a very strong suspicion that the troops based in Cyprus will be in support of that in some way.
0: In terms of... Where we are at the moment, it is a challenging time for the army. We've got resources stretching all around the place, more medical personnel going over to Sierra Leone. Are we all in a fit position to cope with these demands? Well, I've I've got to say yes, I'm
2: confident that we are. But it it is undoubtedly as demanding a time as I've known it. I suppose the last 15 years I've been in operationally related jobs. And in many ways, what both to an extent in Iraq and subsequently in Afghanistan, we slightly accustomed ourselves to mature theatres where there was some stability of expectation. I don't think we're in that situation now. The world you know, appears to be melting down all over the place in different scenarios. I mentioned the, uh, the countering the threat of ISIL, but in another part of the world we've got Russian adventurism into Ukraine, and then something like Ebola comes... And in many ways, it sometimes feels as if the armed forces is a modern-day version of international rescue. Something happens, and our politicians quite rightly turn around, and the armed forces are well-trained, they're flexible, they're agile, they're capable. Uh, we can go and fight floods at home, we can go and guard Olympics at home, but equally, we can go and looking for down Malaysian aircraft. So I think just the... I think that the... Armed forces will have to get used to, rather than this sort of binary sense of being either on an operation or training for the next one, that they're in a constant state of being needed to resolve some of the world's problems.
0: Christopher Lee, to borrow some uh, tourist industry parlance, uh, I think Cyprus is described as the jewel of the Mediterranean. Well, she seriously is a precious asset to the UK now, isn't she? Especially listening to that.
3: It's the only one. You know, we, it's the 50th anniversary, for example, of Malta's independence. And Malta used to have that same sort of role at some time. Yes, it is. There it is, parked right at the eastern Mediterranean. It's got all the electronic intelligence that we want there, etc. But there's something else. He... Uh, the General is saying that um, that the army is getting used to going, do, go, doing different things, and you know, from from floods to, to to exercises. It's not a question they're getting used to it; they are used to it. If you think about it, let's take Syria as a perfect example. The British army has got a colonial and imperial history, long tradition of going to these what the army call knee browning places, uh, being there for years, um, and something else that goes on. Uh, through, for example, if you take Sandhurst as, as a perfect example, we still train the would-be officers. And they quite quickly get to run their army. Some of them become presidents, you see. And it's all part of the Sandhurst club. Um, they, they're quite happy with us, with, with us being there. They not simply rely on us. I don't, I'm not sure they do that. But they're confident. We speak the same language. They even dress in the same uniforms. They have the same parade formations. Uh, we understand each other. We, we, it is that what I call the Sandhurst Club. And in some ways, the British Army is peculiarly fitted to doing this sort of thing with that wiring diagram they take all over the world, rather than any other army in the whole world.
0: Christopher, thanks very much for the moment. We turn our attentions now to global warming. And it seems to be changing the way America's military trains and goes to war. The Pentagon is even undertaking sweeping changes now to its operational systems and installations to keep up with the growing threat of rising seas, droughts, as well as natural disasters. Well, I'm joined now by Sherry Goodman, Chief Executive of the Military Advisory Board, which is a group of former generals and other high-ranking officers that studies U.S. national security. Welcome to SITREP, Sherry. Um, can I ask you, first of all, the Pentagon appears to be taking these threats posed by climate change much more seriously than before. Why is
4: that. well we see the real evidence of it happening now we see rising sea levels we see increased extreme weather uh, and this is going to affect the military operations training and our installations so we have to prepare our soldiers sailors airmen and marines uh, to be ready to face uh, this type of contingency now and in the future
0: I've been reading that climate change is a threat multiplier. Uh, It can provoke new clashes uh, as far as uh, uh, migration is concerned, shortage of food, of water, and that kind of thing. But it's also to do with housing the military, isn't it, particularly in America?
4: Yes, very much so, because we have many of our uh, critical military installations are along our key coastal areas from Norfolk, Hampton Roads in Virginia to San Diego in California. And And we already see the effects of rising sea levels. Uh, in virginia and all along the eastern seaboard and so now we have to plan differently for example we have to take generators out of the basement so that when there's a flood uh, you'll still be able to power them and we have to think about making sure that we can get our um our people onto the military installation even if the access to it is flooded
0: so military families affected um i understand not just military installations but also exercises affected how does that work
4: well, we have um higher um, high temperature days now, so our troops are faced with more extreme conditions um, heat stress also we see more extended periods of drought and uh, water shortages so we have they have to be trained to operate under different conditions, um, more stressful conditions also in California, for example, they've had a long extended drought, so our many military families that are stationed there have to uh, adjust to um, living with less water and also moving towards reduced energy uh cleaner energy and being more efficient in in our energy use both for our military operations and training and how we manage our installations
0: it's not just about infrastructure is it as the troops themselves are at greater risk of for example infectious diseases which spread more rapidly in hotter temperatures
4: Yes, that's indeed true, and uh, so now even as we face the global crisis of Ebola, we're also preparing our troops wherever they're deployed uh, to face increased disease vectors and uh, be able to handle, handle those health threats.
0: Christopher, you're listening to this discussion with Sherry. What's the UK's position on this? Are we ahead or behind the curve on this?
3: The United Kingdom is still making its mind up, or or has almost made its mind up about climate change. Does it exist or not? In fact, the United Kingdom is one of the few countries that's starting to distinguish between climate change and global warming. Um, If you have, for example, uh, the figures that we see at the moment, which are doubled, like 400 parts per million of carbon in the air, and they're saying, look, as opposed to, say, 100 years ago, when there were only 200 uh, parts per million, you say, that statistic sounds a bit nonsensical. What does it prove? It proves that something is happening which you've got to contend with. So when you go into command and control, which is the most important part, for example, of warfare, um, and also in exercise planning, you've got to think of other things. For example, disease, which you were just, just talking to uh, with Sherry about, it's so important now. They get, the, they get the history books out and they look, for example, that during I don't we'd say 100 and, 120 years ago, uh, more people were di- dying from disease, soldiers dying from disease than any other time. You could take it on a grander scale and you'd say, right, 1918, more people died in the world from flu, from flu than were killed in the whole of the First World War. And it's those things which don't really connect But it makes people think. So at the moment, for example, a lot of the British exercises that have been planned for 2015 and 2016 now have this element, what happens if we've got freak storms? What happens if... For example, a a hurricane sort of doesn't go away in November as it's supposed to do, according to the meteorologists. What happens if we've got fire? I mean, I'm not quite sure, Sherry, but uh, it seems to me that half of California is on fire at the moment. And in in the United States, fire is actually destroying huge parts uh, of the the nation. That makes people think, and that's the sort of thing the British are thinking at the moment.
0: Uh, Sherry Goodman, do you want to answer that point? I mean, uh, is there a chance, perhaps, that uh, these military bases and the, where families live and, and so on could be moved away from Hampton Road in Virginia and uh, in the places in California that you talk about?
4: Well, the, uh, the things we need to think about in the future is how to make our critical military installations resilient. Uh, we, certainly where we have um, important uh, facilities um, whether it 's for our our ports it 's for our training, we have to think about what we 've already invested there at the same time, we have to be able as we think plan as we plan for the future, understand um, what the car- the total carrying capacity of the region is in the past, we looked at well, was the land going to be sufficient in the future, was there enough water but it uh, to provide for the troops and the families that live there in in drier parts of our Southwest, but now it's going to also be important to think about: um, Can the coastal areas accommodate? And what's what's the what is the weather pattern? Um, you know, the Gulf is a very um, um, the Gulf uh, uh, region in the U.S. is uh, a very fragile area, and that's uh, subject to increased storms, and and that takes a lot more planning and. Uh, Preparations now in the future to uh, enable those areas to hold, hold the populations they traditionally have. So I think this is a kind of whole of, of community approach, and um, we see our communities around the U.S., and I'm sure you, you have some of this discussion in the U.K. as well now, thinking about how do we plan to become more resilient. Uh, in the face of these
0: changes, Christopher Lee, you were making the point earlier on that logistics thinking really has to change.
3: Yeah, you you, you have to take if you go to war or you're going to a rescue operation. You've got to take things with you which you wouldn't have had to take before. You've got to take far more of your own electricity, for example. And if you're in a coastal state, the best way to take electricity is in a warship, actually. The average destroyer can actually light up a town with its own generators. But the other thing to remember, we were talking earlier, I don't think you heard him, uh, Sherry, the the, the uh, 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 equivalent of the Joint Chiefs, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he was saying that we have to go to things other than wars. We have to go to rescue operations... uh, and, and human operations. The point is, climate change is changing the places that we have to go. You can ch- tear up the Automobile Association book of almost most places that we're likely to have to go into to, to work in to fight in order to rescue now because climate change is making a, a, a different topography of the whole military planning exercise.
0: Christopher Lee and Sherry Goodman, thank you. GFES Zip Canada's Prime Minister Stephen Harper says his country will not be intimidated after a gunman killed a soldier and then went on a shooting spree in Parliament. The soldier was shot while guarding the war memorial in the capital, Ottawa. The gunman was then shot dead in the Parliament building by the Sergeant-at-Arms. Earlier this week, another Canadian soldier was killed by a Muslim convert in Quebec. Well, I'm joined now by Professor Michael Clark, the Director-General of the Royal United Services Institute. Michael, what was your first reaction when you heard the news coming through and these events being described in Ottawa?
5: Oh, my first reaction was that um, these events are always confusing. Um, People hear different things. There were two, there were three assailants, there was a bomb somewhere else. You always know that the actual facts will turn out to be different to the facts that are reported in the first couple of hours. But it was clear that this looked like a jihadist-style attack. It was a lone wolf attack of some sort. We didn't quite know the extent of it. And that it had occurred in Ottawa, which is a fairly tranquil place and certainly wasn't expecting it
0: you're saying the attack bore the hallmarks of a jihadist attack no official confirmation at this stage the attacks are directly linked to is but uh, what do you feel about the possibility of that being the case
5: i think um it's it's quite likely that this will turn out not to be a planned attack but a but a, a, a jihadist inspired attack there's a lot of communication coming out of the middle east from islamic state, from al-Nusra, the uh, uh, AQ-related front in Syria, and from AQ Corps itself, which is encouraging people to have a go. They're not particularly well-trained. They don't have much much, uh, tradecraft in terrorism or being agents of any sort. But the idea is if you see Westerners, if you see a Western target, have a go. And that is the problem with lone wolf attacks. These people are not very skilled. They are relatively easy to stop. Um, But if enough of them try something, then on the law of averages, some of them will succeed. And that seems to have been the case yesterday.
0: Yes, that would certainly explain the haphazard nature of the attacks as they were developing yesterday. But uh, the other thing I was going to ask you is uh, this month, of course, Canada signing up to that uh, U.S.-led coalition uh, over Syria and Iraq. Could that explain the timing uh, for the inspiration for this attack?
5: Yes, it could, uh, because a lot of lone wolves, they, uh, they they may not look very carefully at the news, but they're aware of the big news and the idea that, I mean, this particular man uh, had been uh, denied his passport, he was a, a high-risk individual, he may well have thought to himself, well, if they won't let me go abroad, I'll do something at home. And uh, given that Canada had made this choice to join the international coalition uh, against IS in the Middle East, then it's entirely Plausible. It's quite likely that that may have been in his mind in deciding to mount this sort of attack.
0: We know the UK has a problem with extremism. We know the Netherlands is also struggling. Does Canada have a similar problem?
5: It has had not to the same extent, but I mean there were uh, 18 people arrested uh, in uh, 2011, um, and they were um, 11 of them that were then uh, convicted in 2013. Last year there was a, uh, a big plot a significant plot to bomb trains on the way to the United States and uh, I mean Canada has this issue, has the issue that because it's uh, the, it has a border with the United States Canada always worries that plots directed against the US can be planned and executed in Canada and indeed when the 9-11 attack first took place in 2001 the Canadian security forces immediately thought oh my goodness you know, what if they came from here what if they'd all they, they'd travelled into the United States from Canada so there is always this issue but th- the Canadians until recently have not really had a homegrown terror plot in the way that we we have had in the united kingdom but i think from now on they will worry much more about that
0: you alluded earlier on to the call to arms if you like uh, often on youtube coming um, from islamic militants based in syria and iraq what are the guesses now just how many radicalized young canadian muslim men may be going off to fight in syria
5: not as many as from uh, Europe, uh, because uh, you know, there are people from all over the world in Syria, from Chechnya, uh, Central Asia, from uh, East Asia, but there are certainly some dozens from Canada who are believed to be there. The biggest single national group, funnily enough, are Tunisians, um, and there are interesting reasons for that. But, but certainly, I mean, all Western countries can anticipate that if there are at least some dozens of people from, of their nationalities in the Middle East, that at some point, if they stay alive... Many of them don't. But if they stay alive, at some point they'll end up back in their home countries with a mixture of motivations and emotions. And I think the Canadians are now, as it were, in step with the rest of us in having to assume that there is a, a wave of terror out there that is building because of what's happening in, in Syria and, Lebanon, uh, Syria and um, Iraq. And at some point it will come back to haunt us.
0: Professor Michael Clark, thank you. Well, let's talk now about some other stories of note this week. Uh, Christopher Lee, let's start with Ukraine. A new kind of jihadism emerging, Christian jihadism. Isn't that a, a yeah. strange mixture of words? Well,
3: um, this is the way I'm thinking of it at the moment. It means, it means I'm probably going over the top. But listen, what's happening in Ukraine this week? On Sunday, they've got elections, parliamentary elections. Very important because it puts the stress on East and West Ukraine. Also, if you talk to the polls here who are pretty good with their intelligence passing about what's going on in Eastern Europe at the moment, but polls in London, they're saying that Putin, President Putin, is bullying it about that perhaps we can fix this thing because we've got the oil deal settled, we've got some of the gas deal settled, where oil and gas goes across into Ukraine, who's going to pay for it, and we're going to pay some of the money the Ukraine oil bill, for example. But these elections will show up, and the fighting is still going on every single day in Eastern Ukraine there is a movement among the people the rebels so-called rebels that that hold Donetsk at the moment that they do not see themselves as puppets of putin what they are beginning to see themselves more strongly is eastern orthodox that means the old orthodox christian view um which is you know goes through the balkans goes through eastern, eastern europe um and they see themselves, and they talk about it in this way, we are Eastern Orthodox, i.e. some form of Christian, uh, Christianity, jihadists. So
0: this is religious extremism manifesting they, itself as guerrilla terrorism.
3: If you go back to World War I, one of the reasons that the Russians supported the Serbs after Sarajevo was because they believed they were defending... The Slavs and the Slavs were Eastern Orthodox Christians, and that same thing is starting to emerge. Watch for this. They talked about themselves as Al Qaeda in Greek Orthodox style.
0: Chris, what have you got to tell us about Australia?
3: Australia. Um, we're back into the thing. Who puts boots on the grounds in Iraq and Syria? The Australians have finally resolved all the legal problems they've got, and they're sending. I think it's 200. They're sending 200 special forces to go into Iraq. And that could, that could be announced probably today, tomorrow. With an
0: eye on Canada, probably, at the moment, having agreed that.
3: Uh, well, no, I think they, make the, they had to take the decision before then. But it was the legality, you know, the Attorney General in Australia had to say, listen, we can do this, we can put, especially when you put special forces on the ground. Uh, and, and that, I think, they'll probably announce later today.
0: Let's talk about the Ebola virus then uh, before we go. And uh, your impressions as to how the world has sat up to this disease, which has barely killed a few thousand, although it it is awful the way it kills. But compared to malaria and HIV AIDS, it's nothing.
3: That's right. And I think we ought to remember just one thing. When people turn around and say nothing much is happening, it's not happening fast enough, you look at the planning that's needed to take. You don't just say to a bunch of guys, hey, listen, you 750 fellows, get down to Sierra Leone, will you? It takes a lot of logistics and that's what's happening. I think it's on on stream.
0: Poppy Day up and running. Who's buying Christopher?
3: Um, Poppies came out of the First World War. I think the way the First World War has been commemorated and portrayed has probably moved the country more and more. I suspect there'll be more poppies sold than ever before, but there'll be those golden moments, those dark moments at the cenotaphs that we'll have to think about.
0: Well, that's it for this week. My thanks to Christopher Lee and to our other guests. If you'd like to join the debate, don't forget we're on Twitter and you can follow us at BFBS Sit Rep. Thanks for listening.
1: News, news, sport, sport and music. music for the British forces. This is
4: BFBS Radio 2.
1: Remote.